You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. We have a tendency to romanticize people who die young while they're still in their prime. Think of the way that uh, the public has almost mythologized all those rock stars that died at 27, whether it's Jimi Hendrix, Jim Morrison, Janis Joplin, Kurt Cobain, you name it. All were undoubtedly very talented artists, but as the years go by, evaluations of their talents seem to become more and more flattering. Nobody saw them get wrinkles or go gray or lose their youthful energy with age. So in the minds of, of the people who knew them, or the people who knew of them, they're always at their peak, always in their primes. And for people who weren't around yet when they died, we only know them through stories and by reputation. And the bad or less flattering stuff, you know, their weaknesses, they tend to get overlooked or discounted, while the strengths are emphasized and gradually exaggerated. And that's how legends are made. You know, part of why we say only the good die young is because when people die young, we tend to remember and talk about the good more than the bad. In Latin, they say, de mortuis nil nisi bene, of the dead say nothing but good. People have been saying that for literally thousands of years. You might even say it's human nature. And also, when people die young, it allows us to imagine what could have been, right? Uh, Jimi Hendrix, for example, he only ever released four studio albums. But, you know, just think of all the awesome rock music that the world missed out on, right? And how great would Heisman Trophy winner Ernie Davis have been if he would have had the opportunity to have an NFL career? Or what great things would uh, Roberto Clemente or Pat Tillman have accomplished had they not died tragically young? Or even how different would the world be had JFK or Abraham Lincoln served a second term. Of course, Stonewall Jackson died young, too, and he was already a hero throughout the South, but after his death, an already stellar military career became legendary. And as a side note, the cool nickname has to have added to that, too. I mean, Thomas J. Jackson was a fine military commander, but the name Stonewall Jackson just perfectly lends itself to myth-making. Now, even though most historians have concluded that the South had little to no chance of ultimately winning the war, you know, the, the differences in manpower and, and industrial production were just too great. But even so, the what-ifs with Stonewall's death are, are just too intriguing to ignore. Even the, the pragmatic Robert E. Lee, who generally made an effort to put the war behind him and move on, uh, after it was over, even Lee couldn't resist. Uh, Lee was able to, to envision a path to victory had Jackson survived a, a little longer and, and been with the Army of Northern Virginia on its second invasion northward. After the war, Lee theorized, quote, 
Jackson would have hailed the heights which Ewell took on the first day. If I had had Jackson at Gettysburg, I should have won the battle, and a complete victory there would have resulted in the establishment of Southern independence. Unquote. Southern independence. It's attempting counterfactual, isn't it? At Gettysburg, uh, Lee gave Ewell discretion, like he always gave Jackson. But Ewell opted for caution. Would the much more aggressive Jackson, uh, still in command of his corps, have seized Cemetery Hill when the opportunity was there? Would the battle have played out differently if the men who were charging up that hill were wearing blue instead of gray? And would a devastating defeat on northern soil have turned the public against Lincoln and the war? Who knows, right? But here's the thing, though. Well, two things. First, as we're about to discuss, Jackson was with Lee on the first trip north. And although his performance at Antietam was excellent, his presence alone didn't affect the overall outcome. Or if it did, it wasn't enough to bring about a rebel victory. But, uh, of course... Uh, Gettysburg was was a much different scenario than Antietam. Uh, But also, Stonewall himself would probably not have approved of this kind of thinking. You see, Stonewall was was very fatalistic uh, when viewing the world through Jackson's eyes, uh, which is part of what we're trying to do on the show. Uh, Everything that happens happened for a reason. And it's not for mere mortals to second-guess the creator of the universe. You know, the one who decides these kind of things. Uh, one of Jackson's favorite quotes, and it's, it's not one that he originally came up with, but it was emphasized in his book of maxims that he, he kept beginning during his time at West Point. Uh, one of Jackson's favorite maxims uh, sums up the way he viewed this sort of thing. You know, the, the what-if game. As, as Jackson saw it, quote, Duty is ours. Consequences are God's. Portraits of Blue and Gray, Stonewall Jackson, Part 3. Before we get started, I want to send out a big thanks to Adam for becoming a patron of the show on Podbean. And thanks to everyone who has emailed the show, and thanks to all of you for listening. Uh, The idea that there's uh, people out there who, who are willing to take their time to listen to me talk about the Civil War... It's just, it's really cool uh, and humbling. Um, Now, it took a little longer than I would have liked to get this episode ready, but I'm pretty sure that you're going to find it's worth the wait. This is going to be the last uh, installment in our series on Stonewall Jackson. Uh, Next time, we'll be turning to a figure who is maybe not quite as legendary as Jackson, but who I think had an equal or even greater impact on the war, and a figure who's, who's just as much of an enigma as Jackson. And that is the very first commander of the Army of the Potomac, well, under that name anyway, uh, George Brinton McClellan. Uh, I've already come across some some really interesting psychological insights in studying McClellan, and I'm really looking forward to passing those on. But, of course, that's for next time. For now, here is part three on the legendary Stonewall Jackson. War means fighting. The business of the soldier is to fight. Armies are not called out to dig trenches, to throw up breastworks, to live in camps, but to find the enemy and strike him, to invade his country 
and do him all possible damage in the shortest possible time. This will involve great destruction of life and property while it lasts. But such a war will of necessity be of brief continuance, and so would be an economy of life and property in the end. To move swiftly, strike vigorously, and secure all the fruits of victory is the secret of successful war. Shortly after the victory at Second Manassas, Robert E. Lee sent a message to Jefferson Davis with a bold proposal. Lee wrote, quote, The present seems to be the most propitious time since the commencement of the war for the Confederate Army to enter Maryland. We cannot afford to be idle, and though weaker than our opponents in men and military equipments, must endeavor to harass if we cannot destroy them. I am aware that the movement is attended with much risk, yet I do not consider success impossible. Unquote. At least sent that letter on September 3rd, 1862. And on that same day, he, Stonewall Jackson, and the Army of Northern Virginia began their march north. They planned to cross the Potomac, cross the Mason-Dixon line, and then take Harrisburg, the capital of Pennsylvania. Once in Harrisburg, they would destroy railroads, cut communication lines, and demolish the bridges across the Susquehanna River, essentially cutting the Union in two in the same way that the loss of the Mississippi River threatened to partition the Confederacy. Now, once Harrisburg had been neutralized, the Army of Northern Virginia would have its pick between threatening Philadelphia, Baltimore, or Washington, D.C. itself. It was a bold and very risky plan, but the potential rewards, uh, as Lee seemed to know, were great, the not least of which was further encouragement to foreign intervention. Now, this was the, the plan that Stonewall Jackson had favored after the first Battle of Manassas. But, of course, the first time around, he had been overruled. By the fall of 1862, however, he and Lee were seeing things much more similarly, and Jefferson Davis was more willing to defer to his commanders in the field. So, for the first time, in 1862, they would take the fight into Yankee territory. Lee had come around to Jackson's line of thinking, except for one thing. If it was up to Jackson, the rebel army would be engaging in total war, devastating any property, whether civilian or otherwise, uh, which could potentially have any strategic value to the Union. Lee, though, uh, on his own initiative and also acting um, at Jefferson Davis's direction, he ordered that damage to private property and harassment of civilians be uh, avoided as much as possible. Davis and Lee still held out hope, uh, however slim it had become, that Maryland, uh, with its Southern sympathies, would join the Confederacy or at least resist Union efforts to subdue the South. And uh, there was the chance that a trip across the Potomac would encourage Southern sympathizing Marylanders, uh, many of whom uh, had been subject to warrantless arrests since the suspension of habeas corpus, uh, including uh, especially uh, members of the state legislature, would encourage them to volunteer to fight for the South. In fact, uh, quite a few Marylanders were already wearing rebel gray. But despite their, their philosophical difference uh, over the optimal rules of engagement, uh, Lee and Jackson uh, worked very well together. Jackson didn't show the suspicions and abrasiveness toward Lee that he so often displayed to other authority figures uh, throughout his life. And Lee recognized that Jackson worked best when he had some discretion to accomplish his objectives uh, through the means that he thought best. 
Lee trusted Jackson to think on his feet, so he allowed Stonewall a great deal of flexibility in implementing his orders. The Richmond Whig did a good job of describing the relationship. It wrote, quote, Robert E. Lee, the calm, broad intellect that reduced the chaos after Donaldson to form and order. But Jackson is the motive power that executes, with the rapidity of lightning, all that Lee can plan, unquote. So Jackson was uh, already uh, nearly legendary by this point. Uh, women and children asked for buttons from his coat or locks of his hair, or uh, hairs from little Sorrel's mane. Even in solidly pro-Union Frederick, Maryland, Stonewall's admirers uh, surrounded him, trying to get a glimpse of the famous general. In fact, two young women snuck into the carriage in which Jackson was riding, trying for a, a chance to meet the famous uh, Stonewall Jackson, almost like groupies trying to meet a rock star 100 years later. Henry Kidd Douglas, who was on Jackson's staff, described how all this attention affected the uh, mostly shy general. Douglas wrote, quote, He seemed simply miserable, bowing, blushing, and speechless, unquote. Jackson tried to avoid the attention, but D.H. Hill, you know, Jackson's brother-in-law, speculated that the reason the newfound celebrity bothered Jackson so much was that deep down inside, a uh, part of him actually liked it. Uh, of course, even Union soldiers were starstruck. A, a South Carolina soldier recorded the reaction of a group of uh, bluecoat prisoners upon seeing Jackson. Quote, Almost the whole mass of prisoners broke over us and rushed to the road. They threw up their hats, cheered, roared, bellowed, as even Jackson's troops had scarcely ever done. The general gave a stiff acknowledgment of the compliment, pulled down his hat, drove spurs into his horse, and went clattering down the hill, away from the noise, unquote. So Jackson was a celebrity, and the Army of Northern Virginia was in high spirits, viewing itself as undefeated and about to whip the Yankees on their home field. Uh, but they were both in rough shape physically. Quite a few observers described the Southern uh, soldiers as, as looking like scarecrows, uh, underfed, clothing in tatters, uh, many without any shoes at all. And they smelled bad and were infested with lice. So given their condition, it's, it's perhaps not surprising that the expected influx of Maryland sympathizers uh, into the Confederate ranks never materialized. Notwithstanding their record up to that point, the Army of Northern Virginia looked pretty ragtag uh, next to their well-equipped opponents. Now, Jackson himself had sustained a back injury uh, when a substitute horse who, who was filling in during um, Little Sorrel's time on the disabled list uh, unexpectedly bucked and threw him to the ground, and he was forced to spend a good part of the trip north uh, riding in an ambulance. So just about the entire army was across the river by September 7th, uh, which was only four days after Lee had decided to make the trip. But there was one matter to attend to before making the short trip from... Um, the Potomac to the Mason-Dixon line. And that was the Union garrison at Harper's Ferry. Lee saw the, the 12,000 men there as a potential threat. He didn't want a large Union force to his rear as he moved further and further north uh, and away from his supply base, with his extended uh, supply lines exposed in enemy territory. Jackson and Longstreet disagreed. They argued that Harper's Ferry was just a distraction and posed no real threat to the army. Uh, the time it would take to neutralize the garrison uh, would cost more than the potential danger warranted. But of course, Lee was in charge, 
and he wanted that risk eliminated. So on September 9th, he issued orders dividing his army, making the already risky invasion north uh, even more perilous. So Jackson would take two-thirds of the army, which would in turn be divided three ways to occupy the three heights encircling Harper's Ferry on the west, north, and south. And while Jackson was dealing with Harper's Ferry, Lee and Longstreet would move the rest of the army from Frederick to Boonesboro, about 15 miles to the north of Harper's Ferry. And then D.H. Hill was going to lead a smaller detachment protecting the passes through the mountains in the event, uh, which um, Lee thought was unlikely, that McClellan's Army of the Potomac made any movements west during the three days uh, that had been allotted for Jackson to neutralize Harper's Ferry. Lee set forth the plan in what became the famous Special Orders 191, copies of which were provided to the commanders of each detachment. In hindsight, uh, the plan seems incredibly risky, dividing the army into essentially five parts while on campaign in enemy territory and facing a substantially larger opponent. But Lee was relying on McClellan's history of being overly cautious and moving slowly. However, when a copy of Special Orders 191 found its way into McClellan's hands, Little Mac uh, sensed a rare opportunity, and he picked up the pace. But when Jackson set off for Harper's Ferry with 26,000 men uh, before dawn on September 10th, he, of course, had no way of knowing that McClellan would learn of Lee's plans. Uh, Jackson was a natural choice to lead the mission to Harper's Ferry. His first command of the war had been at Harper's Ferry, so he knew more about the terrain there and the relative strengths and weaknesses of the position than anybody, probably on either side. So Harper's Ferry sits on the confluence of the Shenandoah and Potomac Rivers. So the, the rivers give the position some natural strength, by offering stout flank protection on on three sides. But with Loudoun Heights, Bolivar Heights, and Maryland Heights circling the town also on three sides, uh, Harpers Ferry also has a fundamental weakness in its vulnerability to artillery. Uh, I've heard that Jackson is supposed to have said something along the lines of uh, of that he would would rather besiege Harpers Ferry 100 times than defend it once. But I couldn't find a source for that one. Jackson's men were in place by September 13th. John Walker's contingent occupied Loudoun Heights to the south, across the Shenandoah, and Lafayette McClaws controlled Maryland Heights to the north, across the Potomac. But Colonel Dixon Miles, commanding the 14,000-man Union garrison, had already positioned his men on Bolivar Heights, preventing Jackson from occupying the high ground to Harper's Ferry's west. And Miles was showing every intention uh, that he was going to put up a vigorous defense. In, in fact, the orders under which Miles was, was operating instructed him to, quote, defend all places to the last extremity. There must be no abandoning of post and shoot the first man that thinks of it, unquote. So taking Bolivar Heights was going to be a stiff challenge. Uh, the defender's flanks were protected by both rivers, and a direct assault would involve a steep uphill climb right into the face of the Union artillery. Of course, Jackson recognized this problem, and he noted to McClaws and Walker that the position before me is a strong one. The trick was going to be getting his own guns up to the tops of Loudoun and Maryland Heights, which were 900 and 1,200 feet, respectively, so that they could bombard the Union artillery on the lower Bolivar Heights. Early on the morning of the 14th, Jackson directed McClaws and Walker to establish batteries wherever you can to take advantage 
for the purpose of firing upon the enemy's camps, and at such other points as you may be able to damage him. I desire to remain quiet and let you draw attention from them, so that I may have an opportunity of getting possession of the hill without much loss. I do not desire any of the batteries to open until all are ready on both sides of the river. I will let you know when to open all the batteries. So Jackson's plan was to absolutely pound the Union position on Bolivar Heights from Loudoun and Maryland Heights, silencing the Yankee guns and distracting from the infantry assault uh, that Jackson's force to the west would launch uh, to take the Union position. But before the bombardment started, Jackson extended uh, a certain amount of civility. Uh, He further directed Walker and McClaws, So soon as you get your batteries all planted, let me know, as I desire to send in a flag of truce for the purpose of getting out the non-combatants, should the commanding officer refuse to surrender. That's a nice thought, right? Uh, Let's get everything in position, then give them a chance to surrender without bloodshed. And let them get the women and children out first. Nice guy, right? But this is Stonewall Jackson we're talking about. So, of course, there was going to be a little bit more to it. Should we have to attack, let the work be done thoroughly. Fire on the houses when necessary. The citizens can keep out of harm's way from your artillery. Demolish the place if it is occupied by the enemy and does not surrender. Yes, he ordered them to fire on the houses. And yes, this is the same Jackson that protested uh, when the the Union artillery did the same thing at Fredericksburg. Uh, But we won't get sidetracked on uh, cognitive dissonance. So despite Jackson's orders to withhold fire uh, until further direction, Walker began shooting with the guns that he had thus far been able to get in position at about 1 p.m. He had heard from McClaws that there was a potential Union threat to the rear. And so Walker got itchy. And when his guns opened up from Loudoun Heights, the Maryland Heights guns under McClaws joined in. A-, a Union officer on the scene recorded, quote, The cannonade is now terrific. The enemy's shell and shot fall in every direction. Houses are demolished and detonation among the hills. Terrible. Unquote. The artillery barrage went on for over five hours, with more and more guns joining in as they were dragged up the heights and put into place. By the evening, the more than 50 rebel artillery pieces were sighted in and the Union guns on Bolivar Heights had been silenced. As the sun went down on the 14th, though, Miles and the rest of the Yankees were still holding out. Now, something else had occurred on September 14th, besides the bombardment of Harper's Ferry, and that's the Battle of South Mountain. Uh, in, in possession of Lee's plans, McClellan was, was demonstrating the uncharacteristic aggression. At South Mountain, the Army of the Potomac had overwhelmed D.H. Hill's men, who you remember had been assigned to protect the mountain passes. And when it became clear that the Army of the Potomac was approaching quickly, Lee, who was still missing two-thirds of his army, well, he initially he decided he was going to abandon the whole plan and get back south of the Potomac into Virginia. But he changed his mind when he received word from Jackson that evening that Harper's Ferry would almost certainly fall the next day, and the army would therefore soon be able to be reunited. So instead of crossing back into Virginia, Lee assumed a defensive position on a line of ridges near Sharpsburg, Maryland, with the Potomac to his rear. McClellan would still have a day or two to swoop in and annihilate Lee's small force before Jackson arrived, but McClellan squandered the opportunity, spending the entire next day positioning his men 
and formulating the perfect plan of attack rather than striking while the iron was hot. But in the meantime, Jackson still needed to capture Harper's Ferry. That evening, he came up with a three-part plan to take Bolivar Heights, and with those heights, take the town. First, he would feint an attack on the Union center right, designed to provoke Miles into weakening his left. During the night, 10 cannons would be moved uh, from Jackson's position to the west of the town uh, over to Loudoun Heights into an emplacement that uh, would allow the, um, the newly positioned guns to fire directly into the, the ravines um, that were providing cover to the defenders of Bolivar Heights. And finally, A.P. Hill would lead a 5,000-man night march uh, around to the Union left for a dawn flank attack. Now, it was notable that Jackson chose Hill to lead the contingent that was going to do the bulk of the heavy fighting. And, and that was because just a few days earlier, Jackson had ordered Hill placed under arrest. Uh, they had had an argument over straggling and, and Hill's not permitting sufficient rest breaks during marches uh, per regulation. And Jackson ordered Hill's brigade to stop marching, which, the way Hill saw it, was undermining his authority. So Hill charged over, and he offered Jackson his sword, which basically it was a symbolic way of resigning. And, and Hill said, quote, If you are going to give the orders, you have no need of me, unquote. Now, Jackson did not accept the sword, but instead he replied calmly, Consider yourself under arrest for neglect of duty. And to that, Hill responded, You are not fit to be a general, thereby adding insubordination to Jackson's list of potential charges. But Hill later petitioned to be let out of arrest so that he could be with the army during the coming fighting. And Jackson agreed on the condition that, that Hill voluntarily return to arrest at the conclusion of the fighting, which Hill agreed to do. So A.P. Hill had the 5,000 men in position on the Union left at daybreak. And that's when the artillery once again opened up. But on the 15th, with the guns repositioned, uh, there was nowhere to hide. And the Union garrison, uh, just being shot to pieces, decided to surrender after a brief council of war. A northern reporter on the scene um, had the opportunity to witness Jackson's triumphant return into Harper's Ferry. But he was not all that impressed with the famous Stonewall. He wrote, quote, He was dressed in the coarsest kind of homespun, seedy and dirty at that, wore an old hat which any northern beggar would consider an insult to have offered to him, and in general appearance was in no respect to be distinguished from the mongrel barefooted crew who followed his fortunes. I had heard much of the decayed appearance of the rebel soldiers, but such a looking crowd, Ireland in her worst straits, could present no parallel, and yet they glory in their shame, unquote. Uh, a Union prisoner had a, a similar opinion. He said, boys, he isn't much for looks, but if we'd had him, we wouldn't have been caught in this trap, unquote. I, I like that quote. It, it really captures the essence uh, of how Jackson was viewed by both sides. I mean, he's, he's not a, uh, a fancy lad by any stretch of the imagination, but he undoubtedly knows how to fight. With the potential rearward threat diffused, Jackson reported to Lee, With God's blessing, Harper's Ferry and its garrison are to be surrendered. As Hill's troops have borne the heaviest part of the engagement, he will be left in command until the prisoners in public property shall be disposed of, unless you direct otherwise. 
The other forces can move off this evening as soon as they get their rations. And of course, Stonewall, the loving husband, also took some time to write to Anna that Our Heavenly Father blesses us exceedingly. And the uh, prodigious bounty acquired with the fall of Harper's Ferry uh, would, su- would seem to support his conclusion. In addition to the 12,500 prisoners, uh, Jackson also captured 73 artillery pieces and 13,000 small arms. In fact, it was the largest single surrender of Union troops during the war, and one of the most complete and one-sided victories won by either side. Um, For all that he had gained, Jackson only took 289 casualties. But, of course, there wasn't any time to bask in the victory. As Jackson said to one of his officers, Ah, this is all very well, Major, but we have yet much hard work before us. I thought I knew McClellan, but this movement of his puzzles me. And, of course, the, the movement that Jackson was referring to was McClellan's rapid march toward Lee at Sharpsburg. But as we noted earlier, while Jackson was collecting the spoils and preparing his men for the forced march return to Lee, McClellan was allowing valuable time to pass by. There was no Union attack on September 15th, and division by division, Jackson's men began reuniting with Lee and Longstreet. By noon on the 16th, after a night of fast-paced marching, most of Jackson's men had arrived and assumed position on Lee's left, which had been completely vulnerable the day before. Again, McClellan spent the day observing and further developing his attack plan, allowing Lee to further fill out his lines. The extreme danger had, by this point, basically been averted. The army was reunited, with only A.P. Hill with one division remaining in Harper's Ferry, uh, handling the prisoner paroles. The evening of the 16th saw some some limited skirmishing, but, but nothing heavy. But of course, the heavy fighting was going to come in the morning. And it does seem appropriate that the, the first fighting of the Battle of Antietam, which arguably the fiercest fighting on the, the day that would become the bloodiest in American history, would occur on the rebel left where Stonewall Jackson defended. The Union attack, spearheaded by General Joseph Hooker, began with a southward movement down the Hagerstown Pike and an assault on Jackson's line, which stretched from a wooded area to the west and threw in across a cornfield located by the small Dunker Church, which still stands today. The cornfield itself would change hands four times throughout the course of the morning's fighting. The rebels and Yankees fought a brutal, bloody fight up close and personal. Historian S.C. Gwynn describes the fighting uh, in the cornfield and Antietam, quote, There was something fearless and primitive and elemental in the combat that morning, a kind of madness or possession as soldiers left their humanity behind and became mere feral killing machines, unquote. So after a little more than an hour of that, uh, failed to decide anything, the Confederate line began to waver under the weight of the continuing Union attack. Jackson, who was very active in directing the movements during the fighting, Uh, He threw in his reserves, a 24-man brigade of Texans under John Bell Hood, straight into the Yankee onslaught. Hood's Texans fought furiously. Um, They were angry over having been interrupted while they were preparing breakfast, which was the the first hot meal that they had had the opportunity to enjoy in a few days. And so they managed to secure the line and to push the Union defenders back, but only temporarily. Hood messaged Jackson, quote, Tell General Jackson, unless I get reinforcements, I must be forced back, but I am going on while I can, unquote. 
But Jackson had no further reserves, which he could use to reinforce Hood. And so Hood's brigade was also thrown back, taking heavy losses in the process. Later in the morning, Hood would be asked where his brigade was, to which he responded, dead on the field. Union General Joseph Mansfield was assigned to advance into Hood's retreat. Jackson again repositioned artillery and shifted his men to address the renewed threat, but again his line was wavering and being pushed back. Though Mansfield himself was mortally wounded in the fight, his men were able to take control of nearly the entire cornfield. With Summer's Second Corps on the way to reinforce Mansfield, and Jackson having no further reserves, the rebel left was in danger of being swamped. And if Jackson lost on the left, that would mean the entire rebel army would be flanked, with the Potomac River to their rear and no clear line of withdrawal. But then, just in the nick of time, two North Carolina brigades arrived, sent by Lee in response to Jackson's request after deploying Hood. Summer was moving his men through the woods, seeking to sweep down on Jackson's left from the north. But Sumner had positioned his men in a formation more suited to parade ground march than to battlefield practicality. They were in three two-deep lines of around 500 yards each, packed closely together and with little to no flank protection. A lieutenant colonel from Massachusetts would later recall of Sumner's poor positioning, quote, the total disregard of all ordinary military precaution in their swift and solitary advance was so manifest that it was observed and criticized as the devoted bank moved on, unquote. Stonewall spotted the coming threat and the mistake that Sumner had made in his positioning, and he deployed the freshly arrived North Carolina brigades into a location which, when paired with the repositioned uh, cavalry under Jeb Stuart and, and the artillery on the rebel left, would create a three-sided box for the poorly deployed Union 12th Corps to march directly into. Sumner marched directly into the trap Jackson had set, and when his men emerged out of the woods and into the cornfield, they immediately began taking heavy, heavy fire on their front, left, and right. They took well over 2,000 casualties in less than 15 minutes. That's 133 men hit every minute, more than two men hit per second. Sumner realized his error, but only after it was too late. He reportedly shouted to his men um, as they were being inundated with infantry and artillery fire, Back, boys! For God's sake, move back! You were in a bad fix! One of the injured was a young captain from Massachusetts by the name of Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr., who would survive his injuries and go on to serve on the United States Supreme Court. Now, the destruction of Sumner's advance brought an end to most of the day's hostilities on the Confederate left. After five hours of intense back-and-forth fighting and over 12,000 casualties, Stonewall Jackson had finished for the day. There was still plenty of blood to be shed at the Battle of Antietam. Um, neither Bloody Lane nor Burnside's Bridge ha had yet earned their respective nicknames. But Stonewall Jackson could proudly report to Lee, My troops held the ground which they had occupied in the morning. Shelby Foote relays a story about Jackson that afternoon. He's surveying the fields filled with dead and dying soldiers, uh, still lying where they had fallen. The medical staffs were hopelessly overwhelmed. Jackson was eating a peach that his staff surgeon, Hunter McGuire, had generously given him, Jackson having not had the opportunity to eat yet that day. As Stonewall and McGuire looked down upon the brutal destruction, the thousands of dead and injured soldiers— covered in the blood that they had courageously shed for their respective causes, 
Jackson remarked to the doctor that God has been very kind to us today. McGuire, though, concerned about the severe damage that the Yankees had dealt to Jackson's Corps, questioned Jackson, can our line hold against another attack? Stonewall was unconcerned, and gesturing out toward the Union lines, confidently replied, Dr. McGuire, they have done their worst. There is now no danger of the line being broken. He was, of course, correct. Jackson and Jeb Stewart, at Lee's request, would attempt to organize an afternoon counter-assault. But between the strength of the Union lines and the losses they had sustained in the morning's fighting, both men concluded that an attack was impossible, and they reported the same to Lee. The next day, McClellan would similarly conclude that his army had been too damaged to follow up on the attack. And when McClellan chose not to advance, the Army of Northern Virginia began its movement back into its home state. Now, Lincoln believed that um, after Antietam, the rebels were on the ropes, and he very well may have been correct. But uh, once again, George McClellan chose uh, not to find out, and the inaction cost him his job a few weeks later, replaced by his friend and former subordinate, Ambrose Burnside. Now, Burnside was determined not to demonstrate the same failing that had led to the downfall of Little Mac. He would prove uh, over-aggressive to a fault at Fredericksburg. But Fredericksburg would not be fought for another three months. The armies took a few months off during the fall of 1862 to lick their wounds. In October, right around when former star classmate McClellan was being relieved of command, Stonewall Jackson was promoted to lieutenant general, simultaneously with James Longstreet, and officially made the commander of the 2nd Corps of the Army of Northern Virginia. Upon deciding that no immediate Union follow-up to Antietam was in the works, Lee divided the army to cover the anticipated Union approaches for the next attack on Richmond. Longstreet was sent east to Culpeper, and Jackson went west, back to the northern part of the Shenandoah Valley, near Winchester, where he was able to spend a relatively quiet fall camp. During that fall, Jackson received a distinguished visitor in his camp, um, British observer Garnett Walsley, who would later become commander-in-chief of Her Majesty's Army, but who was at the time a relatively young, up-and-coming British officer. He, he made it a point to, to meet the famous Stonewall Jackson while on his uh, observational tour of the States. Wolseley, who can be viewed as a, a relatively unbiased neutral source, was nonetheless quite impressed with the General Jackson who welcomed him into his camp. Wolseley reported, quote, Dressed in his gray uniform, he looks the hero that he is. His thin, compressed lips and calm glance, which meets you so unflinchingly, give evidence of that firmness and decision of character for which he is so famous. Though his conversation is perfectly free from all religious cant, it is evident that he is a person who never loses sight of the fact that there is an omnipresent deity ever presiding over the minutest occurrences of life. With such a leader... Men would go anywhere and face any amount of difficulties. And for myself, I believe that, inspired by the presence of such a man, I should be perfectly insensible to fatigue and reckon upon success as a moral certainty. Jackson, like Napoleon, is idolized with the intense fervor which, consisting of mingled personal attachment and devoted loyalty, causes them to meet death for his sake and bless him while dying. Unquote. So here we have a knowledgeable British observer who presumably has no dog in the fight, 
reporting that if he were in Jackson's army, he anticipates that Stonewall Jackson's mere presence would make him insensible to fatigue and reckon upon success as a moral certainty. And then he goes on to compare Jackson to Napoleon Bonaparte. And now keep in mind, this is a military officer in 1862. Uh, Napoleon was not exactly uh, the most popular figure with the British Army, but he was certainly respected as one of, one of history's great military commanders and leaders. So this is unquestionably high praise, and it shows just how far that Jackson had come uh, in terms of the aura that he put off. From early in 1861, when war correspondents were, were commenting about how he, he just didn't have the look of a military commander. Uh, you remember that reporter in Harper's Ferry who said when Jackson first took over there that, and I'm paraphrasing, if Jackson was the best that the Commonwealth of Virginia could do, uh, they might as well just hang it up. Well, here we are some 18 months later, and we have a a British officer comparing the the scruffy-looking science professor to Napoleon Bonaparte. That's uh, that's just an incredible transformation. In November, Jackson received some good news in a letter from his sister-in-law. It turns out Anna had recently given birth to a daughter, and Jackson was given the honor of providing the baby with a name. In his response, he offered the name Julia Laura Jackson after his mother and sister. And you'll remember he had been exceptionally close to his sister Laura growing up and prior to the war, but they had become estranged due to Laura's very strong pro-Union sentiments. She'd even publicly denounced her brother for joining the Confederate Army. But apparently that rebuke wasn't sufficient to dissuade him from um, naming his daughter after her. Later in life, though, Jackson's daughter would drop the the Laura from her name. Jackson didn't have too much time to celebrate, though, or, or to make the trip to North Carolina to meet his new daughter. Because later that month, he was summoned by Robert E. Lee to reunite with the rest of the army near Fredericksburg. Lee had learned that the Army of the Potomac, now under Ambrose Burnside, was on the move, looking to cross the, the Rappahannock to the east of Lee's army in, in another effort to get at Richmond. Jackson's corps made the 175-mile trip in right about 12 days, and began arriving on December 1st. And within a few days, the Army of Northern Virginia's strength uh, near Fredericksburg was up to 70,000 men. The rebels were positioned along a wooded ridge line just to the south of the town, looking down on a one-mile open plain uh, between their position and the river. So to get to them, the Union infantry would need to first cross the river and then approach over the open area under the fire of Confederate artillery. In addition to the natural defenses, the position also included a stone wall, a sunken road, and wooded cover that would make it uh, even more difficult for Burnside to dislodge the rebels. So this is a really strong position we're talking about. Um, Jackson liked the spot that Lee had chosen um, in terms of defense, but he surmised that the ridge commanding the crossing on the north side, which would be where the Union artillery was set up, would prevent any follow-up. As he described it, they would whip the enemy but gain no fruits of victory because the Union artillery would protect the Union infantry during its retreat. Jackson's Corps was positioned on Prospect Hill, which was on the Confederate right, and Jeb Stewart's cavalry held the extreme right flank. Because it was a lower section of the ridge, um, Longstreet was holding the, the higher section, Jackson's Corps defended a line of only two miles, compared to the five miles defended by Longstreet's Corps. But this shorter line uh, allowed Jackson greater depth. 
so that he had 10 men for every one yard of front that he had to cover. As the army prepared for battle, Jackson, Longstreet, and Lee, they met to go over their battle plan. But before they got into a discussion of tactics, they had to address what was an elephant in the room. Jackson seemed to have gotten a makeover. Instead of the tattered uniform and old Kepi cap that he had thus far worn, Jackson now styled a flashy, even garish, new uniform that he described as some doing of my friend Stewart, I believe. And we'll let Shelby Foote tell the story of uh, Jackson's unexpected new fashion sense prior to Fredericksburg. Foote writes, quote, It was Jackson, but quite unlike the Stonewall they had known of old. Gone were the mangy cadet cap and the homespun uniform, worn threadbare since its purchase on the eve of the Valley Campaign. Through the miasmic nightmare of the Seven Days, the suppression of the miscreant Pope at Cedar Mountain, Second Manassas, the invasion of Maryland, and the hard fight at Sharpsburg. Instead, he wore a new cap bound with gold braid and more braid, chicken guts, the Confederate soldier style the stuff, looped on the cuffs and sleeves of a brand new uniform, a recent gift from Jeb Stewart. Even his outsized boots were brightly polished. For all his finery, he looked, as always, older than his 38 years. His pale blue eyes were stern, his thin-lipped mouth clamped forbiddingly behind the scraggly dark brown beard. But this had not protected him from the jibes of his men, who greeted him with their accustomed rough affection as he rode among them. "'Come here, boys,' they yelled. "'Stonewall has drawn his bounty and bought himself some new clothes!' Others shook their heads in mock dismay at seeing him tricked out like some newly commissioned quartermaster lieutenant. "'Old Jack will be afraid for his clothes!' they said, amid the catcalls. He will not get down to work. Unquote. And Longstreet joined in the ribbing of Stonewall, uh, asking his fellow corps commander, General, do not all these multitudes of Federals frighten you? Jackson responded, We shall see very soon whether I shall not frighten them. Longstreet's sense of humor, uh, according to Foote, was heavy-handed, but Jackson had no humor at all. Still, Lee's old war horse went on. Jackson! What are you going to do with all those people over there? Jackson replied, somewhat laconically, Sir, we will give them the bayonet. Then he mounted Little Sorrel and rode off to rejoin his corps. Upon his return, a staff officer expressed some concern over the immense and still-growing Union force which had been amassing on the other side of the river. Their position was strong, but could they hold it against so many Yankees? Jackson dismissed the concern, emphasizing the confidence he had in his men. Quote, Major, my men have sometimes failed to take a position, but to defend one? Never. I am glad the Yankees are coming. The battle effectively began on December 11th. Lee made the tactical decision not to contest the crossing. Instead, they'd allow Burnside to cross the Rappahannock with only limited resistance and invite him to attack the formidable rebel position. But the token resistance uh, proved a little stiffer than either side had anticipated, and it took nearly the entire day before a federal beachhead was established. The next day, the 12th, was spent moving the massive Union artillery across the river and getting it organized and into position, while the Confederates patiently awaited the Yankees' attack and took advantage of the delay by further fortifying their defenses. The heavy fighting began on December 13th with a Union artillery barrage. Jackson chose not to respond. He preferred to save his ammunition uh, for use against the coming infantry assault. And when the infantry did advance, the rebel artillery was devastating. 
what few men from the first wave uh, made it through the cannon fire were splintered by rebel riflemen. And what may be an apocryphal story, one of Jackson's uh, officers commented on, on what a shame it was that so many brave men had to sacrifice their lives for the poor tactical choices of their commanders, even if they were Yankees. Jackson was short on sympathy. He is said to have replied only, Shoot the brave ones down. The cowards will run. That's another quote that I couldn't find a source for, but I decided to to throw it in because it, it seems like something that Stonewall Jackson could have said during the heat of battle or would have said, um, but didn't find an original source for it. Now, for the most part, Fredericksburg was defined by repeated fruitless Union infantry charges shattered by Confederate artillery and rifle fire, uh, unleashed by the rebels from their covered positions. The one bright spot for the Union came in the afternoon when a Pennsylvania division under George Meade managed to find a seam into the rebel lines through a heavily wooded area that A.P. Hill had failed to properly defend. The breakthrough momentarily threatened to split Stonewall's lines in two. Uh, Jackson, though, sent his reserves forward. Remember, his line was stacked uh, extra deep at Fredericksburg. And uh, Meade's unsupported division was emphatically uh, thrown back after the brief uh, penetration. Uh, By 2.15, the fighting on the right was effectively over when General William Franklin advised Burnside that that his men were in no shape for another attack. Now, Jackson considered uh, a counteroffensive downhill toward the recovering Union lines. Um, He said, I want to move forward to attack them, drive them into the river yonder. His hope was that they could soften him up with an artillery barrage and then attack with four divisions at twilight um, so that in the event they had to retreat, uh, they could do so under cover of darkness. But when the artillery was moved into position, the Union guns on Stafford Heights, uh, across on the other side of the river, which commanded the approach that the rebels would have to take, they almost immediately knocked out all the rebel guns. And so Jackson reluctantly decided to nix the attack. Uh, The fighting on the Confederate left didn't go any better for the Federals. Longstreet's men, though spread more thinly, commanded an even stronger position. And and as with the right, wave after wave of Union infantry broke under violent repulse. After the heavy losses and lopsided defeat, Burnside decided uh, against renewing the attack the following day. Jackson, for his part, was disappointed. He commented, I did not think that a little red earth would have frightened them. I am sorry that they are gone. I am sorry I fortified. Fredericksburg was a resounding Confederate victory. But as with just about any battle, it came with losses on both sides. On December 15th, Jackson visited South Carolina Brigadier General Maxie Gregg, who had, like many of Stonewall's subordinates, previously had some friction with the Corps commander. It was time to set aside prior quarrels, though, because Maxie Gregg was now on his deathbed. Jackson attempted to reassure the dying Greg. The doctor tells me that you have not long to live. Let me ask you to dismiss this matter from your mind and turn your thoughts to God and to the world to which you go. After saying a final goodbye, a sobered uh, Jackson returned to his tent alongside staff surgeon and friend Hunter McGuire, to whom Jackson lamented, How horrible is war? Now, Dr. McGuire, uh, also affected by Greg's impending death, replied, Horrible, yes, but we have been invaded. What can we do? Jackson gave a chilling response. Kill them, sir. Kill every man. 
Notwithstanding the battlefield's success, Fredericksburg didn't have all that much strategic significance. Uh, The real impact was in terms of morale on both sides. Northern newspapers uh, scorned the poor performance uh, of the Union Officer Corps as public support for the war continued to flag. At the same time, Southerners celebrated what was viewed as the brilliance of Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson. In reality, Fredericksburg was a temporary high point as the overwhelming Union advantages in men and materiel continued to wear down on the rebels. And the Southern High Command understood this. Lee received a letter from his brother congratulating him on the Fredericksburg victory. Although Lee appreciated the sentiment, he acknowledged that the recent success was not the decisive victory that it was being portrayed as. Lee wrote, quote, I acknowledge nothing can surpass the valor and endurance of our troops. Yet while so much remains to be done, I feel as if nothing had been accomplished. But we must endure to the end. And if our people are true to themselves, and our soldiers continue to disregard all thoughts of self, and to press nobly forward in defense alone of their country and their rights, I have no fear of the result. We may be annihilated, but we cannot be conquered. No sooner is one federal army scattered than another rises up. This snatches from us the fruits of victory and covers the battlefield with our dead. Yet what have we to live for if not victorious? It's noteworthy that most of the best generals on both sides tended to give credit for victories to their men, or in in Jackson's case, to God. Lee and Grant both would consistently laud the troops under their command whenever they were congratulated. Uh, This is something you see with pro athletes, too. Um, Even if they have an an incredibly good game in the post-game interview, they give credit to the other players on the team. You know, a pitcher who throws a no-hitter will talk about how good of a game the catcher had and and how great the fielding was. Uh, So you might even say that humility is an important part of both uh, being a good team player and also being a good leader. Now, I don't want to get too far off track, but, you know, it's it's fun to extract some little life lessons from history uh, whenever they present themselves. Uh, So other than an aborted attempt at at an offensive, which came to be known as the Mud March, Fredericksburg was pretty much the end of the fighting in Virginia for 1862. Both armies took a few months off and went into winter quarters. Over the next four and a half months, Jackson and his men had some rare leisure time as they spent the cold winter of 1862-63 in camp south of the Rappahannock. Now, food was in short supply, But the men managed to stay in good spirits with a lot of singing, um, including the new hit tune that had spread throughout the the Confederate Army, Stonewall Jackson's Way. And they even organized amateur theatrical performances. They held a 5,000-man organized snowball fight, complete with structured armies, that was reported on by the Richmond Papers. And a Christian revival made its way through the ranks, due in no small part to Stonewall Jackson's behind-the-scenes efforts. Uh, He paid for regimental chaplains and and Bibles out of his own pocket, recruited guest preachers to give sermons to the men, and helped to start an organization for chaplains throughout the Confederate Army. Uh, Stonewall, however, he only rarely uh, would personally evangelize. He he concluded that he could not presume to come before the public and even intimate what course I think should be pursued by the people of God. Jackson insisted that preaching in the Army should be non-denominational, But he also favored the Confederacy's adopting Christianity as the state religion, opining, Let our government acknowledge the God of the Bible as its God, and we may expect soon to be a happy 
and independent people. Jackson's headquarters for the winter uh, were at a local mansion known as Moss Neck. Now, he was offered the manor house itself, but he declined, and, and he instead accepted a smaller building on the grounds. Even so, his accommodations were the best he had had, probably since the beginning of the war. While at Moss Neck, he took advantage of the impressive library in the primary house and spent much of his off time reading, which was an activity he had previously enjoyed tremendously, but he had found little opportunity uh, to engage in of late. Moss Neck was the site of a memorable Christmas, 1862 dinner, uh, attended by Jeb Stewart and and R.E. Lee and their staffs and hosted by Jackson. The the feast included rare uh, treats received from around the state, ham and turkey, oysters, wine and butter, and the formal decor of the Moss Neck Manor House, which seemed quite out of character for Stonewall, led to some some good-natured teasing from Stewart, but also from Lee. Uh, both of whom cited the the fineries as evidence that Jackson had gone soft and lost his edge. Uh, Lee concluded that Jackson was only playing at being a soldier, and and he told uh, Stonewall that he he should visit Lee's own headquarters if he wanted to see how real soldiers lived. Uh, As with Jackson, the time off had brought out Lee's sense of humor. A few days earlier, the gray-bearded Confederate chieftain introduced the renowned General Stonewall Jackson to a group of admiring aristocratic Virginia ladies as, quote, the most cruel and inhuman man you have ever seen. Why, when we had that battle up at Fredericksburg, do you know that it was as much as we could do to prevent him from taking his men with bayonets on their guns and driving the enemy to the river, unquote. Of course, Jeb Stewart, unlikely, was well known for his sense of humor, so he was bound to join in the ribbing of Stonewall. Stewart uh, facetiously commented on the many paintings donning the walls at Noss Neck, which he feigned to find uh, unbecoming, remarking that he, quote, wished to express his astonishment and grief at the display of General Jackson's low tastes, as an officer in attendance recalled. Uh, According to Stewart, Jackson's ill taste would certainly be a, quote, sad disappointment to the old ladies of the country who thought that Jackson was a good man, unquote. Uh, the winter time off allowed everyone to loosen up and even have some fun, but sadly, it would not be free from sadness for Stonewall Jackson. During that winter, a five-year-old girl living at Moss Neck took a shining to Jackson, who was known to be fond of kids. The young girl would regularly visit Jackson at his headquarters, and she was usually greeted with Uh, tasty presents like fruit and candy. Uh, One day when she lost the comb that she used to tie back her hair, he presented her with a braid from his uh, fancy new lieutenant general hat as a replacement, which she proudly wore. Sadly, though, uh, Jackson's new friend took ill in March and was unable to recover. Uh, Upon hearing this uh, sad news, Jackson was heartbroken. Uh, He responded with, what was described as, quote, an outburst of tears and a convulsed frame, unquote. The event might have been particularly upsetting to Jackson, who, who had still yet to meet his own daughter. And despite the time off, Hannah had not been able to visit due to the baby's illness. They did their best to fill, uh, fill the gap by exchanging affectionate letters. Jackson wrote to Anna, Whilst I cannot see my wife and baby, It is a great comfort to know that you have a darling little pet to keep you company in my absence. But then in April, when spring brought the baby improved health, Anna was able to make the trip to Virginia from North Carolina, where she had been staying. 
And Thomas Jackson met five-month-old Julia Laura for the first time. He doted on the little girl, and he held her every chance that he got. Anna and baby Julia received regular visitors from both the officers and soldiers, who had taken to referring to the baby as Little Miss Stonewall. They enjoyed a a nine-day blissful reunion. Anna later remembered that her husband seemed, quote, in the full flush of vigorous manhood. I never saw him look so handsome, so happy, or so noble. But it was destined not to last long. At dawn on April 29, 1863, Thomas and Anna Jackson were awakened by a knock on their bedroom door. Jackson remarked to his wife, That looks as though Hooker were crossing. He told Anna that their visit, however joyful it had been, was coming to an end. He left to begin making arrangements to respond to the movement, telling Anna that he would try to see her off if he could get the chance, but that, in all likelihood, uh, this was goodbye. Anna would leave on a train that afternoon, heading for Richmond, after a messenger advised that her husband could not return. Jackson's first act after getting the report of the Yankee movement was to send a messenger to Lee to deliver the news. As with Stonewall, Lee was awakened early that morning. Lee kidded with the messenger, Captain, what do you young men mean by waking a man out of his sleep? After the young officer realized that Lee was not truly chastising him, Lee added, Well, I thought I heard firing, and I was beginning to think it was time some of you young fellows were coming to tell me what it was about. You want me to send a message to your good general, Captain? Tell him that I am sure he knows what to do. I will meet him at the front very soon. What Lee and Jackson would be discussing was the recent movement of a large part of the Army of the Potomac, now commanded by General Joseph Hooker. Three Union Corps had surreptitiously marched around the Confederate left flank in hopes of coming between Lee's force and Richmond. In conjunction with the flanking march, Hooker also sent 10,000 cavalrymen, further around the left on a mission to sever the railroads uh, connecting the Army of Northern Virginia with Richmond. Meanwhile, two federal corps would remain behind uh, to Lee's front to hold him still while the flanking force landed the heavy blow. Upon taking command, Hooker recognized that uh, bad intelligence had been handicapping his predecessors, and and so he got rid of the Pinkerton detectives uh, who had been providing the overblown estimates of Lee's strength and instead he relied more heavily on his cavalry and on balloons to gauge his opponent's position and numbers. Hooker knew that James Longstreet, with most of his corps, was away from Lee in southeast Virginia, several days' march away. He estimated Lee's strength at not much over 50,000, which was fairly accurate, and so he knew that he held a large numerical advantage and could afford to press the action. The Union maneuver had succeeded brilliantly. Hooker believed that Lee uh, now faced a choice between either fighting on Hooker's chosen ground or giving up Richmond. The chosen ground was near Chancellorsville, which sounds like a town, but is in fact just a large house in the middle of nowhere, next to an uninviting, uh, almost jungle-like 70-square-mile wooded area known as the Wilderness. S.C. Gwynn describes the Wilderness as, quote, Stunted thorny snarl of dwarf pine, cedar, hickory, scrub oak, and assorted brambles, dark, impenetrable, trackless, libranthine, and often swampy wilderness, unquote. Lee's first move was to send a division under Richard Anderson west to entrench a defensive line east of Chancellorsville to protect the flank. Jackson would leave Fredericksburg with 24,000 men first thing in the morning to join Anderson. 
Affording Jackson the wide flexibility that had thus far proven so effective, Lee ordered Stonewall only to make arrangements to repulse the enemy. Only one division, which would be under Jubal Early, would stay behind in Fredericksburg to hold the line that had been the scene of the December battle. Jackson was on the move by 3 a.m. the next day, May 1st. Upon linking with Anderson, Stonewall assumed command, and he didn't waste any time before instigating a fight. He sent out two columns marching west in search of Hooker shortly after arrival. Uh, This was Jackson's military philosophy in a nutshell. Stay active. Don't let your enemy get comfortable. Or in his words, We must make this campaign an exceedingly active one. Only thus can a weaker country cope with a stronger. It must make up in activity what it lacks in strength. The defensive campaign can only be made successful by taking the aggressive at the proper time. Napoleon never waited for his adversary to become fully prepared, but struck him the first blow. Hooker didn't know Jackson had arrived, and coincidentally sent out five divisions organized in three columns marching east at nearly the same time that Jackson had sent his men marching west. A little after 11 o'clock, the middle and southernmost of the Union columns collided with Jackson's two columns. Hooker had planned for all three columns to combine before attacking, but Jackson's quick movements prevented that from happening. Instead, the northernmost federal column was cut off from the fighting altogether, and the other two were separated. Hooker soon got word that the fighting had started and that Stonewall Jackson was leading the rebels. It's hard to say exactly uh, what was going on through in Hooker's mind, but uh, for one reason or another, he ordered his corps commanders to pull back to Chancellorsville. And this was a truly bad decision for several reasons, but not the least of which was that he was putting his men back into the wilderness, where their numerical advantage was less of a factor. His corps commanders were bewildered, even angry, over the apparent timidity from a man who had earned the nickname Fightin' Joe, and who had just managed to position 70,000 men on Robert E. Lee's flank. But it appears that Jackson and Lee's aggressive reaction caused Hooker to second-guess himself. Uh, Why would they move to attack? Shouldn't they be pulling back to protect the capital? Uh, Maybe those rebel prisoners who said Longstreet had returned were telling the truth. And so Hooker decided to play defense. And his men set up a pretty impressive defensive position. Impressive enough that after a little probing, Jackson decided that it would be foolish to attack. Jackson met with Lee that evening to decide how they would deal with Hooker. Jackson was surprised at how little persuasion uh, was necessary to get Hooker moving backwards and concluded that uh, Hooker would likely pull back across the Rappahannock. Lee, though, disagreed. He expected that Hooker would dig in and wait for the rebels, which, of course, was correct. The Federal Army was arranged in a six-mile-long, horseshoe-shaped line, with the left flank protected by the river and the center extremely strong due to entrenchments, uh, artillery, and the naturally defensive terrain. Importantly, uh, remember how we said Hooker had sent 10,000 cavalry to cut the railroad to Richmond? Well, if they were moving toward Richmond, they weren't with the army. And that meant the rebels had a stark intelligence advantage and were able to control the roads around the armies. Lee would see this play out in reverse a few months later when Jeb Stuart disappeared before Gettysburg. But at Chancellorsville, Stuart was on his game. And so right on cue, he arrived at Lee and Jackson's meeting. Now, the jovial Stuart was in especially high spirits that day because, uh, well, first because upon his arrival, he saw that Jackson was still wearing the snappy new uniform 
that Stewart had given him the previous fall. But more importantly, he had learned and could report that the Union right was exposed, or in the air, as they said. So after Stewart's welcome news, the question switched from what are we going to do to how are we going to do it? Lee poured over the topographical map and wondered aloud, how can we get at these people? And the ever-literal Jackson responded, You know best. Show me what to do and we will do it. They wanted to attack Hooker's right, but the question was, how would they go about doing it? And so Lee sent out some scouts to try to figure out the optimal route for the attack. Jackson and Lee tried to get some sleep while they waited for the scouting report, but it didn't take long. With help from the owner of the local ironworks, who knew all the roads in the area, the scouts had learned of a new road, so new that it wasn't on the maps yet, that would perfectly facilitate the circular flanking maneuver. Jedediah Hotchkiss, Jackson's topographer, had already prepared a new map, with the new road included. Looking over Hotchkiss's map, Lee asked Stonewall, General Jackson, what do you propose to do? Jackson responded, Go around here. He pointed on the map to the newly found road. Lee followed up, What do you propose to make this movement with? Jackson replied, With my whole command. Now, remember, Longstreet was still down in southeast Virginia, so Jackson's command represented nearly the entire army. So Lee, of course, wanted to know, what will you leave me? To which Jackson stated he would leave the divisions of Anderson and McLaws. So needless to say, what Jackson was proposing was a huge gamble, dividing the already outnumbered army, uh, with Hooker's superior force to their direct front. If Hooker got wise... He could attack straight ahead and overwhelm the the more or less token force remaining with Lee. So they were banking on Hooker wanting to fight a defensive battle, and they were banking on Jackson being able to pull off the flanking maneuver secretly and quickly. But Lee weighed the potential rewards as worth the risks, and so he issued orders, which were, again, very general, uh, to Jackson authorizing the flank attack. Jackson had his 33,000 men marching by 3 a.m. the next morning, May 2nd traveling as silently and as quickly as possible. Along the march, one of Jackson's staff officers remarked on, on just how many representatives of VMI, both current and former students and teachers, were with the forts. Jackson famously responded, Colonel, the Institute will be heard from today. And that quote now uh, dons the Stonewall Jackson statue at the school. They began arriving at the planned destination, the Orange Plank Road, about three miles west of Hooker's headquarters at Chancellorsville, around 2.30 that afternoon. After Daniel Sickles engaged with some of Jackson's rear guard, Hooker began receiving reports of a large rebel movement to his right, but Hooker concluded that it was probably a retreat toward Richmond. Even so, he directed General Otis Howard, commanding the 11th Corps on the far right, uh, to be prepared in the event of an attack. Howard, though, took essentially zero precautions, instead relying on the thick woods to his right for protection. Having reached the Orange Plank Road, the army began turning east for the attack. Cavalryman Fitzhugh Lee, nephew of R.E. Lee, directed Jackson to a vantage point from which the target for the coming attack was visible. Lee approached Jackson. Quote, General, if you ride with me, halting your column here, I will show you the enemy's right. Unquote. The overlook that Fitzhugh Lee brought Jackson to set about 700 yards from Howard's far right, and thus the right flank of the entire Union army. And it was indeed still in the air. 
the Union line was facing south, allowing Jackson's force to attack straight down the turnpike and hit the flank at a right angle. In naval terminology, Jackson was about to cross the T on Howard and Hooker. Jackson sent a courier to Lee, who had been making demonstrations to Hooker's front in hopes of distracting from um, the, Jackson's movement, uh, at 3 o'clock, advising that the Union force that he was about to attack was, quote, about two miles from Chancellorsville. I hope as soon as practicable to attack. I trust that an ever-kind providence will bless us with great success. Respectfully, T.J. Jackson, unquote. Uh, with another VMI professor, Robert Rhodes, directing the movement, uh, over the next two hours, the entire column turned and prepared to attack. 22,000 soldiers would spearhead the assault, with Jackson holding the remainder in reserve. Once formed up, the line stretched for two miles on either side of the turnpike. At 5.30, Jackson turned to his fellow VMI professor, Rhodes, and asked, Are you ready, General Rhodes? Rhodes succinctly responded with an enthusiastic, Yes, sir. Jackson laconically replied, You may go forward then. A few moments later, dozens of deer, rabbits, and other wildlife began fleeing into the Union lines, scared up by the coming rebel blitz. This, of course, caught the Union soldiers' attention, but it was followed by stillness and calm, and so they began again to relax. After that, though, they heard the unmistakable scream of the rebel yell, and soon thereafter, a gray wave of infantry came pouring out of the woods, catching Howard's men completely off guard. Jackson followed the attackers, yelling, Press forward! Press forward! A quick onslaught was more important than keeping tight formation. The Union 11th Corps fled east toward Chancellorsville, most not even having time to pick up their firearms. Within 90 minutes, the 11th Corps had been completely routed and broken. Jackson had rolled up the Union right nearly a mile and a half and was approaching Hooker's headquarters. Of the 11,000 Union soldiers holding the right, 2,400 were killed, wounded, or captured. Jackson only lost 800. Jackson was glowing, raising his hand into the air in praise of God in response to the repeated rebel cheers he received wherever he went on the battlefield. Hooker began receiving reports of the attack around an hour after it began, and though he had been blindsided, he started turning the army and artillery to prevent his right from being rolled up any further. Jackson wanted to push on, but two things prevented him from making his way all the way to Hooker's Chancellorsville headquarters. First, the rapid advance had left his army disorganized, and second, it was getting dark. But it was too great of an opportunity, and so Jackson decided to try something rare in the Civil War, a night attack. He ordered A.P. Hill to organize the troops for the coup de grace and press forward as soon as they were ready. In the meantime, Jackson, with eight other riders, rode out to scout the field and the area between the lines and the skirmishers. Fatefully, neither Jackson nor anyone on his staff let the men on the lines know that he was going out to scout. It was a still, moonlit night. Just enough light to see the silhouettes of the riders, but not enough to distinguish their uniforms. One of the skirmishers got spooked and fired an errant shot, which led to a chain reaction of fire by more skirmishers and men on the main line. While this shooting was going on, the 18th North Carolina, holding the center of the main line, spotted the riders, and the commander on the scene, Major John Barry, believing the Union cavalry was up to a damned Yankee trick, gave the order to fire. Three of the nine men in Jackson's group were hit, but three balls managed to find Stonewall Jackson, one in his right hand and two in his left arm. The worst wound was just below his shoulder, where the bone had been completely shattered. A.P. Hill, who was in the area with another scouting party, 
along with one of his staff officers, rushed to Jackson, tore off his jacket, and fashioned two makeshift tourniquets and a sling for Jackson's right arm. Major Barry, the Confederate officer who had given the order to fire, died two years after the war, at the age of only 27, from, according to his family, severe depression and guilt over having given the order to fire at Stonewall Jackson. In response to the gunshots coming from the rebel lines, the Union artillery opened up, thinking that they were facing an assault. So the small group trying to get Jackson back uh, to the rebel lines was under continuous fire. Sergeant Hunter McGuire remembered the chaos, quote, At this moment, the scene was a fearful one. The air seemed to be alive with the shrieks of shells and the whistling of bullets. Horses, riderless and mad with fright, dashed in every direction, unquote. They loaded Jackson onto a gurney, which was unfortunately dropped several times when the carrier was either hit or had to take cover from the incoming fire. Finally getting back to the lines, Jackson said to McGuire, I am badly injured, doctor. I fear I am dying. I fear the wound in my shoulder is still bleeding. McGuire managed to stop the bleeding and gave Jackson morphine and whiskey to relieve the pain and calm him down. With the bleeding stopped, Jackson was moved by ambulance to a field hospital a half mile away. After further examining his injuries, McGuire concluded that Jackson's arm would need to be amputated, to which Jackson stoically responded, Do for me whatever you think best. Command of the Corps descended to A.P. Hill, and then to Jeb Stewart after Hill was also injured. Stewart, not knowing Jackson's battle plan, sent an urgent courier requesting direction from the wounded general. McGuire remembered, quote, General Jackson was at once interested and asked in his quick, rapid way several questions. When they were answered, he remained silent for a moment, evidently trying to think. He contracted his brow, set his mouth, and for some moments was obviously endeavoring to concentrate his thoughts. For a moment, it was believed he had succeeded, for his nostrils dilated and his eyes flashed its old fire. But it was only for a moment. His face relaxed again, and presently he answered very feebly and sadly, I don't know. I can't tell. Say to General Stewart he must do what he thinks best. By the next morning, Robert E. Lee, on the other side of the battlefield, had learned of Jackson's wounding and wrote to Jackson, quote, I have just received your note informing me that you were wounded. I cannot express my regret at this occurrence. Could I have directed events I should have chosen for the good of the country to have been disabled in your stead? I congratulate you upon your victory, which is due to your skill and energy, unquote. Jackson, remembering his piety, even in his severe state, observed, General Lee is very kind, but he should give the praise to God. Later that day, another successful attack would reunite Lee's holding force with Jackson's corps, and soon thereafter, Joseph Hooker withdrew the Union army north of the Rappahannock. Chancellorsville had been a great rebel victory. Some historians have concluded that it was Lee's greatest, but the price paid was painfully high, over 13,000 casualties, one of which was the second most important man in the army, and its spiritual leader. Lee famously concluded in the aftermath, Jackson has lost his left arm, but I fear I have lost my right. Much to Lee's relief, over the next few days, Jackson appeared to be recovering quickly. He was thinking clearly again and in good spirits. He noted to one well-wisher, You find me severely wounded, but not unhappy or depressed. I believe that it has been done according to the will of God and I acquiesce entirely in his holy will. It may appear strange, but you never saw me more perfectly contented than I am today, for I am sure my heavenly Father designs this affliction for my own good. 
His thoughts were primarily on God, but he also commented on the recent victory. Hooker shouldn't have sent away his cavalry. That was his great blunder. Our movement yesterday was a great success. I think the most successful military movement of my life, but I expect to receive far more credit for it than I deserve. Most men will think I had planned it all from the first, but it was not so. I simply took advantage of circumstances as they were presented to me in the providence of God. Hoping to facilitate a quick recovery, Lee sent Jackson on a painfully bumpy 27-mile carriage ride to a comfortable manor home west of Chancellorsville. Lee also sent the surgeon McGuire to attend to Jackson. By Tuesday, May 5th, McGuire was reporting his satisfaction with Jackson's recovery. But then on Thursday the 7th, Jackson began to deteriorate. Though the amputation had been a success and the wounds appeared to be healing, Jackson had contracted pneumonia, possibly resulting from a bruised lung sustained in the multiple falls while being carried in the gurney. Anna and baby Laura arrived that afternoon to find Stonewall Jackson in a rough and deteriorating condition. Jackson was able to to visit briefly, but he was having trouble staying awake and slept nearly all day. He would seem to waken only to mumble or or sometimes shout uh, battle commands like, Order A.P. Hill to prepare for action. McGuire recognized Jackson's critical state, and he called for eight other doctors to provide advice and second opinions. But they were unable to help, and by Saturday, May 9th, it was becoming obvious, even to Jackson, that he was on his deathbed. Noticing the many doctors at his bedside, he remarked, I see from the number of physicians that you think my condition dangerous, but I thank God if it is his will that I am ready to go. But in some of his uh, fewer and fewer clear-thinking moments, uh, Jackson also said that he didn't believe that he was going to die that day because he thought that God still had more work for him. But despite his own optimism, the doctors knew that the following day, Sunday, May 8th, was going to be Jackson's last day on earth. Anna delivered the news of his impending death to her husband, and Stonewall accepted his fate. When informed uh, of the worsening condition while at a church service that morning, Lee was less accepting, declaring, Surely Jackson must recover. God will not take him from us now that we need him so much. When a suitable occasion arises, tell him I prayed for him last night as I never prayed, I believe, for myself. Unquote. But Lee's prayers and the prayers of thousands of other Confederate soldiers would not save Stonewall Jackson. Around 3.15 p.m., he spoke his final words to McGuire. Pass the infantry to the front rapidly. Tell Major Hawks. And then Jackson quieted, revealing what McGuire described as a smile of ineffable sweetness, and said, Let us cross over the river and rest under the shade of the trees. Thomas Jonathan Stonewall Jackson was dead at the age of 39. The loss came as a shock to the Confederate camp, where most of the soldiers had only heard stories of Jackson's improvement. The victory celebrations turned to mourning, similarly to what would happen two years later following Lincoln's assassination. All businesses in Richmond were closed, and a Confederate flag that had been slated for the Capitol building was instead draped over the dead hero's coffin. The Richmond Dispatch noted of, of the viewing at the governor's mansion, quote, We have never before seen such an exhibition of heartfelt and general sorrow, unquote. And even Robert E. Lee, a man who rarely showed any emotion in public, openly wept over Jackson's passing. 20,000 mourners attended the funeral, 
one of whom, James Longstreet, remembered, quote, Officers and soldiers gathered to do last honors to their dead comrade and chieftain seemed suddenly to realize that they were to see Stonewall Jackson no more forever, and fully to measure the great misfortune that had come upon them. And as we turned away, we seemed to face a future bereft of much of its hopefulness, unquote. Even in the North, newspapers across the country ran respectful obituaries. The Washington Chronicle wrote, quote, Stonewall Jackson was a great general, a brave soldier, a noble Christian, and a pure man. May God throw those great virtues against the sins of the secessionist, unquote. And Union General Governor Warren summed up the feeling uh, among the Union men upon learning of Jackson's passing. Warren wrote, quote, I rejoice at Stonewall Jackson's death as a gain to our cause, and yet in my soldier's heart I cannot but see him, the best soldier of all this war, and grieve at his untimely end, unquote. Jackson's body was returned to Lexington for burial, as he had requested, and after a short spell in North Carolina with Anna, who ended up living till 1915 and came to be known as the widow of the Confederacy, Little Sorrel returned to Lexington as well. The horse would spend his final days grazing on the VMI parade ground. Little Sorrel outlived Stonewall by over 20 years and is now on display at the VMI Museum in Lexington. VMI remains proud of its connection to Stonewall Jackson. An impressive statue stands on the campus. The entrance to the cadet barracks there is known as Jackson Arch, and the school's archives include a large collection of Jackson's original papers. One of Jackson's maxims, or a paraphrased version of it anyway, you may be whatever you resolve to be, is engraved on Jackson Arch. VMI is honest about Jackson's less-than-stellar record as a professor. Um, the page on the school's website devoted to Jackson admits, quote, he was neither popular with cadets, many of whom ridiculed and disliked him, nor considered to be a particularly able teacher, unquote. Of course, nobody ever claimed Jackson was a great educator. His legacy is as a military commander, but that legacy has become surprisingly controversial. In the years immediately following the war, and for a century or so thereafter, he was widely regarded as one of, if not the, best generals of the war. Historian Alan Axelrod, uh, writing more recently but reflecting the traditional view, uh, evaluates Jackson like this, quote, As a subordinate commander, except during the Valley Campaign, he was never responsible for big-picture strategy, but he was the greatest field commander on either side. His death at Chancellorsville very nearly amounted to a decapitating blow from which the Confederate military could never and would never recover, unquote. More modern historians like to suggest that Jackson was overrated. Not bad, but not as good as advertised. And his sleep-deprived struggles at the Seven Days Battles serve as Exhibit A for this view. Uh, of course, when a figure becomes as legendary as Stonewall Jackson became after the war, it's pretty easy to be overrated. It's like saying Jimi Hendrix is overrated as a guitar player. Uh, sure, maybe he's not the best ever, but that doesn't mean he wasn't really good. So speaking of music, to close out our series on Stonewall Jackson and the legends surrounding him, we'll read a little from the song Stonewall Jackson's Way, uh, which, as we mentioned earlier, was written in 1862 and became the 19th century equivalent of a hit. The publisher maintains that the lyrics were found after the First Battle of Winchester on the body of a fallen Confederate soldier. But I should mention that the authorship is disputed. Either way, Stonewall Jackson's Way. Come stack arms, men, 
pile on the rails, stir up the campfire bright. No matter if the canteen fails, we'll make a rousing night. Here Shenandoah brawls along, and Burley Blue Ridge echoes strong to swell our brigade's rousing song of Stonewall Jackson's way. We see him now, the old slouched hat, cocked over his eye askew, the shrewd, dry smile, the speech so pat, so calm, so blunt, so true. The blue light elder, his foe knows well, says he, that's Banks, he don't like shell. Lord save his soul, we'll give him hell in Stonewall Jackson's way. If you would like to contact Portraits of Blue and Gray, you can reach us by email at blueandgraypodcast at gmail.com. Questions and comments are welcome from Yankees and Secesh alike. And remember, we always spell gray the old-fashioned way, G-R-E-Y. Visit the show's webpage at portraitsofblueandgray.podbean.com. If you enjoyed the show and want to contribute financially, click on the Become a Patron badge at the top of the main page to visit our crowdfunding page. Or visit that page directly at patreon.podbeam.com slash blueandgray. All contributors are wholeheartedly appreciated and will be thanked by name in an upcoming episode, unless you ask us not to. Please rate and review the show on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or whichever other app you used to find us. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us again soon.
traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.